Last week in our look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20, we considered how Nehemiah confronted the task given him by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He put one foot in front of the other until he arrived at where the work needed to be done. He examined the worst parts of the walls. He invited others to join him in God's work. And finally, he stood up to the opposition brought against him by the enemies of God. How appropriate that may prove in the next weeks and months. Using this true history as a kind of parable, we tried to draw out some life principles that God reveals to us in this part of his word. Some of us have lives that are like the Jerusalem of Nehemiah's day. The walls are crumbling and the infrastructure is falling apart. I recommended that each of us allow our great leader, capital L, Jesus Christ, to inspect our lives during the darkness of our brokenness. Allow him to direct the rebuilding of your life's walls where sin has entered in and destroyed whatever it could touch. It is a step of humility and faith to let Christ give you an honest evaluation of who you truly are. Because, listen carefully, you don't know yourself as well as you think you do. And when the rebuilding begins, so does the enemy's opposition. Nehemiah faced the opposition by ignoring the scorn, proclaiming his absolute confidence in the God of Israel, proclaiming who he is as a servant of the Lord, and telling his enemies that they might as well move on because he isn't going anywhere. God called him to this place, and if they have a problem with that, they'll have to take it up with God. One more quick observation before we get into today's message. It is easy when looking at the book of Nehemiah to get caught up and focused on the work being done. But remember, the Bible isn't about Nehemiah. It's about God. One of the most common misconceptions that the world has regarding Christianity is this idea that wicked people go to hell and good people go to heaven. So as long as we do more good than evil, we'll be okay. Nothing could be further from the truth. All people are sinners. People that trust themselves and their own good work go to hell. People that trust Christ and his work on the cross go to heaven. It is the cross that divides good from evil, purpose from despair, and heaven from hell. There is none good but God, and he hung on the cross so that by faith we can exchange our sin for his goodness. No other goodness is good enough. So as we continue and talk about work, recognize that this is not for the goal of salvation and eternal life. This is about a response of love and thankfulness for what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. And as our creator, he knows that we will live a more abundant and fulfilled life if we give ourselves in service to him 
till he calls us home. I titled today's message, Get to Work. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm going to stumble through the names. Forgive me, I couldn't divide it up enough to, to uh, miss out on names and such. So I'm going to stumble through some, some names, but let's read it together. I trust you'll forgive me for stumbling through the names. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Also the sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their lord. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadeah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah the Gibeonite, Jadon the Meronathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Judea, the son of Harumath, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, made repairs. Malchiah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, made another section, repaired another section, I'm sorry, as well as the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halahesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Malchiah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of beth Hakarem, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalon, the son of Colhose, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Beth-Zur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool, and as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites, under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Kela, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren under Bavi, the son of Henadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kela, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, the leader of Mizpah repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section 
from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Binwi, the son of Henadad, made, uh, repaired another section, from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Padea, the son of Parosh, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Malchiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mithcat gate, and as far as the upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner and as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have read um, a very unusual part of your word this morning, but it is your word. And I pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to what you would have for us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanted to read that because when we read that whole chapter, we get a real sense of the people banding together and working. I want to start with a quick analogy to prepare our minds better to understand today's message. I used to work for Tom Egley, building houses. Sometimes as I am driving around with somebody or having a discussion with somebody, they will ask, did Tom Egley build that house? I'll answer, yes, he did. When he builds a house, he wants it done right. Everything from the footings to the shingles are done with precision and care. That's how Tom Egley builds. The fact of the matter is that Tom did have some help building those houses. I know. I was there. But the other fact of the matter is, if Tom were not involved with his finances, tools, reputation, and oversight, that house would not have been built. He could have hired someone other than me, and the house would still be there. So it is entirely accurate to say, Tom Egley built that house. The same is true of Nehemiah's wall. Were there others involved? Of course, we just, we're just looking at a long list of some of them today. But Nehemiah had oversight of the entire project. More to the point. When Jesus Christ is doing a work in your life, it is his work. You're involved. You know. You're there. But it is still the work of Christ. And without Christ, 
It just wouldn't happen. This does not mean you sit back and do nothing. But you do submit to his authority and oversight, carefully given to us in his blueprint. Let's find our starting points. You'll notice that starting with the sheep gate, Nehemiah 3 is all about work. Individuals pitched in and did the work together, coordinated and led by Nehemiah. All of the work is described around the gates. The gates were the critical entry and exit points to the city and the places most likely to see an enemy attack. Therefore, the work started at each gate and worked out from there. Eliashib, the high priest, is the first worker mentioned. He rose up to do the work with the other priests, and they worked at rebuilding the sheep gate and the section of wall near there. There may have been a very good reason for the zeal of Eliashib. It seems as though he was a partner of Tobiah. Remember Tobiah from last week? One of the people that tried to stop the work? <clears throat> he was a partner of Tobiah, and he had been responsible for giving over the storerooms of the temple to this enemy. As is often the case, a stark repentance can lead to increased zeal to work for the Lord. Let's read a fairly long passage, Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. It's a familiar story. Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And he stood, sorry, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Seeing the error of his ways, Eliashib now wanted to set a new example for the people, showing them openly that he had been wrong about Tobiah. The scripture reads that these men also consecrated their part of the building project. This reveals a part of living a life of fulfillment and purpose. Do everything as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. Interestingly, the men of Jericho built the part of Jerusalem's wall that faced their city. The next gate the Bible mentions is the fish gate. It got its name because there was a fish market nearby. And it says that the people made repairs. The word for repairs in Hebrew is the word kazak. And it's used 35 times in this chapter alone. It has the idea of strengthening, encouraging, and making something strong. These are principles that have application to far more than material gates and walls. The Bible says that we too must be built up and repaired. In Ephesians 4.12, God says, The purpose of the church is for the equipping of the saints. And the idea behind equipping is to strengthen and prepare something to be used. We come together as Christians to strengthen one another, enabling each other to live for Jesus and serve him outside the gatherings of the church. The Tekoites are then mentioned. They did their work. They were workers, these fellows, whoever they were. The people of the city of Tekoa were more than willing to work, but it says their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. For the most part, people joined in, but not everybody. These nobles from the city of Tekoa thought they were above the hard work. So they didn't join in. Literally, the idea in the Hebrew is that they wouldn't submit to the work. It appears this was a pride issue. They would not bend their necks to do what the Lord had asked of them. But the Tekoites, the Tekoite commoners, are kind of like missionaries, aren't they? Traveling here and there, depending on their leader, capital L, to coordinate their efforts. May the Lord bless those who look about for where the work needs to be done, even when their own leaders fail them. The next gate mentioned is the old gate. It says that a goldsmith and a perfumer took up the work at the old gate and its nearby walls. These were men of different professions. They were not professional builders. They were not trained for this kind of work. The first ability that the Lord looks for in those that would do his work is called a veil. 
ability. The one with few gifts and little talent, who has a passion and a drive to see God's work done, will accomplish far more than a gifted and talented person who doesn't have passion or drive. Orrin Woodward said it like this, One person with commitment accomplishes more than a thousand with an opinion. At the end of the war in Bangladesh in 1972, a man named Vigo Olson was inspired by the chapter we just read. He proceeded to help build thousands of houses for the people of that war-torn country. Today, he is 94 years old and still working as a missionary. His current work is translating the New Testament for the Muslims of the area in Bangladesh. At the old gate of Jerusalem, there's a wall called the Broad Wall, which was rediscovered by archaeologists, by the way, in 1970. And it can still be seen in Jerusalem to this day. I was going to put a picture up, and I forgot. It was really a double wall, two walls running parallel. It's more than 20 feet wide, and the Babylonians had real trouble with this wall, and most of it remained intact throughout the siege. Five times in Nehemiah chapter 3, it speaks of those who worked on the section of the wall right in front of their house. We need to give attention to the work of God right at our own homes. If the work needs to be done anywhere, it needs to be done at our homes. Nobody in modern history has encouraged and taught this more than Dr. Jordan Peterson, who, whom you know by now I appreciate tremendously. In his book, 12 Rules for Life, the title of one of his chapters is, Set Your House in Perfect Order before you criticize the world. When he looked at the world around him, he found that there were a lot of people that were willing to battle climate change, end global hunger, fight for world peace, dismantle all nuclear weapons, and the list goes on and on. But a lot of these same people couldn't be bothered to clean up their own room. In the mind of anybody with any sense, these people are unqualified, and hypocritical. God's pattern has always been home first and then work outward from there. If you cannot put your own house in order, you have no business trying to fix anyone else's, let alone the community, let alone the country, let alone the world. We even see this same pattern when the Lord Jesus directs the spread of his gospel. Here's a passage describing the time just before his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I'll read from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, when the disciples had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Where does it start? Some of us say Jerusalem. Wrong. Close, but not quite. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And then you shall be witnesses in your city, in your region, in the regions close to yours, and then out as far as the gospel will go. Start at home. We'll talk more about this later. There is special hope in the name Malchiah, the son of Harim. This is one of the men Ezra mentioned in chapter 10 as one who had taken a pagan wife. That was many years before this. So Malchiah turned things around. And now, years later, he served God by building the wall. In general, a believer should never let past failure get in the way of doing the Lord's work. The New Testament, of course, qualifies this for moral failures of leaders of the church. But that's only a small percentage of the work that the Lord has available for his people. And this is without mentioning that your failures prior to becoming a believer can be a testament to the transforming power of the grace and mercy of God in your life as you are sanctified by his truth. Shalom, the son of Halahesh, and his daughters made repairs. Everyone who could help did help in the repairs. The Bible goes on to mention the valley gate, the refuse gate, the fountain gate, and the water gate. I've put a map on the back of your notes so that you can, as you're going through the passage, see how it lays out some of the work. It's not a 100% accurate map because we're not entirely sure where some of these places are, but it might help you see what was going on. A brief note on the section of wall near the water gate. Apparently, the Tekoites, whose nobles, remember, were too proud to do the work, they weren't satisfied with the significant work that they had already done. They went on to do even more work. They weren't going to let the bad example of their nobles who did no work, which we see in verse 5, keep them from working above and beyond the call of duty. Maybe because their nobles were lazy, they had already learned to work under difficult circumstances. I don't know what it was, but the end result was people that knew how to bend their necks to the work. The Bible mentions the horse gate and the Mifkat gate, which is the muster or assembly gate. Now, I want to spend the rest of the message talking about the principles of application for our lives today from this passage. And I'm, I've selected only just a few. When God's people work together, there is no limit to what he can accomplish through them. The wall was continuous. Any gap or weakness compromised the entire structure. Therefore, each space at the wall was important. We could even say each stone was important. Let's read what the New Testament says about this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, a fairly lengthy passage, verses 12 through 27. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many 
are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. For if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. There is no room among the workers for those that are set upon tearing down. I'm sure there was plenty of room for advice and encouragement. There was even room for correction and admonition. But destruction would not have been tolerated. Tragically, many of us that are corrected or admonished think we are being torn down. And many of us that are tearing down think we are admonishing or correcting. In order to get this right, we must make sure we are acting in love, in humility, and in accordance with the Spirit of Christ. If it doesn't give us pain to bring correction or admonishment to someone, if indeed we get a sense of self-righteousness or self-justification, chances are we are tearing down rather than building up. If we have to persuade others that we are acting in love because what we are doing looks nothing like the love Jesus showed for those that surrounded him, it is likely we should be questioning whether we are truly being obedient to God's word and God's spirit. Maybe we are. But maybe we should take some time for reflection as well. After all, where do the teachings of Paul contradict the example set by Christ? If you receive correction or admonishment and your immediate response is pointing out the other's faults as you see them or angrily defending yourself before even considering what is being said, then you are very likely misunderstanding your correction for tearing down. We need the wisdom of the Lord in this matter. It is one thing when the Lord in his holiness and sinless perfection 
applies correction to our lives through his word and spirit. It is a completely different, although sometimes necessary thing, when one forgiven sinner applies correction to another forgiven sinner. And it's going to take all the grace we can muster through Christ's strength to receive any benefit through a situation like this. One final thing to mention regarding this often delicate topic. There are times when we as Christians are going through a difficult patch in life. Perhaps we are ill or despondent or weak in some other physical or mental way. Perhaps we have lost someone we loved and are grieving. I know when I've gone through times like this, I added to my own pain by accusing myself of weakening the body of Christ during my times of weakness. For those of you that may be experiencing this type of guilt, I want to try to encourage you with this. The only thing that weakens the body of Christ, the church, is sin. The Apostle Paul described in 2 Corinthians 12, a time in his life when he was going through a particularly difficult patch, including physical pain and even discouragement. And here's what he wrote about that time in his life. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was suffering from a thorn in the flesh, some sort of physical pain. He pleaded with the Lord. It gave him mental anguish. But this did not bring weakness to the church, but strength, because the power of Christ would rest on him. This was not a sin problem. So neither Paul nor Christ's body was weakened. Perhaps the body suffered, and the members came together by the power of Christ to bear up under suffering. But the body was not weakened. If you are living under pain today, either physical or mental, do not despair. Allow the body, the church of Jesus Christ, the brothers and sisters sitting around you right now to minister the strength of Jesus Christ to you so that you one day can minister the strength of Christ to others. A careful study of this passage that we read, Nehemiah 3, with a map of Jerusalem showed that the people made repairs close to home. I briefly mentioned this earlier, but the biblical principle has always been that work begins at home. 
revival begins at home. When we look out at our society, and societies like it all over the West in particular, we can see that the gospel needs to get out to these people. Canada desperately needs the gospel. British Columbia desperately needs the gospel. Vanderhoof desperately needs the gospel. But if you think you'll ever reach out to any of these before the full power of the gospel hits home, even in your very heart, you are destined to be disappointed. The gospel isn't just a story. It's a person, it's a death, and it's a resurrection. The person the gospel is about isn't just an ordinary person. It's the Son of God, God incarnate. The death in the gospel isn't an ordinary death. It's a voluntary, sacrificial, penal, substitutionary death on my behalf and yours. And of course, there's no such thing as an ordinary resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the pattern for mankind. God displayed his power by raising Jesus from the dead to live forevermore. And he will do the same for all those that are in Christ, those that have trusted him with their lives and with their deaths, should the normal pattern not be interrupted by the trumpet call of the day of the Lord. And herein lies the power of the gospel, to raise the dead to life in Christ. Every person either is or was dead in trespasses and sins. We need the power of the resurrection, firstly, to raise us from the death of sin, and secondly, to live as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom while our lives are being played out here on earth. The power of the gospel in the life of a believer is defined by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Because this is what God designed life to be. When your life is increasingly defined by this fruit of the Spirit, because he dwells abundantly in you, you are ready to take the gospel out of your home. But not until then. Listen to the words of Christ again, just shortly before his ascension. Behold, I send the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Jesus tells his disciples that they are not to go out with the gospel until they are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This is true of our lives, and it's true of each day. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, are not ready to go out there until we are endued with power from on high. The work is focused around the gates, and I believe this is my final point. Throughout this entire chapter, 
The work is listed as beginning at the gate and moving towards the next gate. The gates of the city were the weak points. They were the points at which people move in and out, and the points at which the enemy's attacks would be concentrated. I submit to you this analogy. The gates of your life are your eyes and your ears and your mouth. This is where a huge majority of your interaction with the material world takes place, where information goes in and out. If we are to strengthen the walls of our city, of our moral character, I suggest we also begin at the gates. What are you taking in with your eyes and your ears? Is there a chance for the enemy to sneak in at one of these points? What are you letting out with your mouth? Are you speaking truth no matter the cost? Are you building others up with your speech? Or is your mouth more like the dung gate where the filth of the city flows out? Allow your leader, capital L, to inspect the gates that have been burned with fire and begin to direct the process of repair where it is most needful. Perhaps you've had good success at the gates. Continue then with the walls. We do not want the enemy of our souls to scale the wall at an unexpected time and place and launch a sneak attack. The Lord is ever vigilant but we can have lapses, can't we? Let us as his people have our eyes ever on our leader and study the blueprint for our lives so that we might know his will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful again that you have brought us together in this place. We're so grateful that you have, to this point at least, continue to protect this body of believers. We pray that you would continue to give courage where it is needed, that you would give faithfulness, that we would respond to uh, the attacks that the enemy is throwing at us um, as one of your people, as one who relies on our captain entirely. We pray, I, I pray especially this morning, for people that are gathered here this morning that are experiencing the kind of pain that even the Apostle Paul endured at different points in his life. That we too would be reminded that your grace is sufficient even for us. That we too would be reminded that suffering doesn't weaken the body. Suffering strengthens the body. On the other side of that, sin does weaken the body. I pray that we would not, how, how do I say this? I pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is our heart's cry. This is one of the reasons we look forward to heaven so much. We pray that you would come again soon, Lord, that we would hear that trumpet, that we would come home to be with you. We so long to look upon your face. 
We sang the hymn, Oh, How I Love Jesus, and I pray that those words would be true in each person's heart here this morning, particularly those that are enduring physical and mental pain. Bring healing. Bring wisdom. Bring peace as only you can bring. Thank you for this time together in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.